0: So, moving on to the presentation, in light of COVID, some rules came out that cannot be ignored. And so, today's presentation is focused on the intersection between the March 9th, 2020 HHS final rules, patient access to PHI, and healthcare apps. So this information is not meant to constitute legal advice, consult an attorney for advice on a specific situation. Also in light of the dynamic and fluid nature of waivers and laws and postponements that are constantly being published on a daily basis by a variety of governmental agencies, I advise that you go to a particular agency's website For updates on a daily basis. So, today we're going to begin with the two new final rules, as well as the potential impact on providers. From there, we'll go into a review of healthcare app guidance and telehealth and HIPAA during the coronavirus, which relates to HIPAA liability, and we'll provide some suggestions for integrating the new rules while continuing to strive towards HIPAA compliance, and then we'll do some takeaways and some final questions. So, a lot's been going on, not only in relation to COVID, but also in relation to HIPAA and interoperability and some case law, actually, which is very germane to providing patients with medical records, and what third parties can charge. So first and foremost, an overview of these two final rules. One comes from CMS and the other one comes from ONC, and I'll parse those out in a moment and delve into each on their own. But basically, this effort was part of the Bipartisan 21st Century Cures Act. And the My Health E Data Initiative. So My Health E Data is designed to empower patients around a common aim, giving every American access to their medical information so they can make better healthcare decisions. As we all know, that availability of a patient's medical record stems back to the Privacy Rule, and it is uh, a bit of a refresher. Privacy Rule was passed or published in the federal register in december 2000 it became effective in february 2001 but then we had some refinements which were published in the federal register in august of 2002 so that's where you're going to find a lot of the privacy rules and access to medical records then in 2005 the security rule became effective and obviously the security rule in many ways complements the privacy rule the privacy rule is much broader in that it applies to all forms of protected health information and the security rule only applies to what is known as ephi or electronic protected health information Unless there is a reason for me to distinguish between ePHI and PHI, like most people, I just use the term PHI, which means, again, protected health information. So, Signet Health is a prime example of a civil monetary penalty being assessed. And this is a more recent headline, and it read, the HIPAA privacy rule requires that a covered entity provide a patient with a copy of their medical records within 30 days and no later than 60 days of the patient's request. Now what's important here is not only the fine of $1.3 million, but also you need to look at state law and see what the state law requirements are. In Texas, for example, our time frame is much shorter than thirty days. And just the no later than sixty days, I always say an average of forty-five because typically a covered entity will request an extension of time. Sometimes they have to go through their third party other times. If it's an older medical record, it could be in storage, things of that nature. So it could take a little more time. But the key if you are the covered entity or the business associate working with the covered entity is to make sure that the patient is notified so that the patient or their attorney does not file a complaint with ocr a related item which is also a headline nugget is the psyops case and the key takeaway from this is that a portion of the final omnibus rule which everyone be familiar with if you work in the healthcare space basically changed how third parties can uh, obtain and charge for medical records and the case is out of the district court for the district of Columbia and the opinion came down on January the 23rd of 2020 the judge is a well respected judge in this case and it was actually a very interesting read and I would encourage everyone to read it. Basically, what was at issue was a portion of the final rule was challenged in federal court, specifically provisions within 45 CFR 164.524. Again, this covers that fundamental right to an individual's access to their own protected health information. And basically the federal court vacated the third party directive within the individual right of access in a very narrow way. They said insofar as it expands the High Tech Act third party directive beyond request for a copy of an electronic health record with respect to protected health information of an individual in an in electronic format. Additionally, and this was another key focus of this case, the fee limitations set forth in that subsection of 164.524 will apply only to an individual's request for access to their own records. And it does not apply to an individual's request to transmit records to a third party. So what does that mean? If you're a law firm, or another entity, what could happen is you could be charged a higher rate to get those. So I worked on the BP Deepwater Horizon medical benefits claims for four years. And what we suggested to avoid this objection outright was to have the client request the medical records. And A, it's a lot less expensive. B, they're typically provided more quickly. The right of individuals to access their own records and the fee limitations that apply when exercising this right are undisturbed and remain in effect. So what we were advising our clients years ago with respect to health and medical conditions related to the BP Deepwater Horizon case are really what the court enforced here, that the patient is not gonna be able to be exploited. And it has to come in a format that the patient requests. I'm gonna say there's a caveat to that that we're gonna delve into, into a little bit. And that has to do with the liability of the covered entity, as well as some tracks for the weary as we get into these two final rules. Again, one issued by CMS, the other by ONC. So first, let's start with the new ONC final rule. Well, basically, it affects 45 CFR parts 170 and 171 RIN 0955 AA01. The effective date is 60 days after publication in the federal register and the compliance date after publication in the federal register again is six months but we have some updates which i'm going to get to on the other slide first and foremost the final rule was just published today in the federal register and today is may 1st of 2020 so you wanna mark your calendars that that is the date that it was actually published, even though HHS, ONC, and CMS announced these final rules on their website on March 9th of 2020. This final rule implements certain provisions of the 21st Century Cures Act, including conditions and maintenance of certification requirements for health information technology, developers under the ONC Health IT Certification Program, and there is an area that we're going to delve into related to this that, quite frankly, is painful, especially for those of you who just got up to speed on NIST and ISO and CORBID and the rest of the uh, types of frameworks that are used for compliance. So this one is a gem, and again, it's absolutely painful to have to learn something new, and it's a little perplexing as to why a completely new standard was adapted. But if you are either a Fortune 100 tech company all the way down to a startup company, you absolutely need to make sure that you are complying with HL7 FHIR API capability standards. So, this rule also finalized certain modifications to the 2015 edition of Health IT Certification Criteria and additional ways to advance interoperability, enhance Health IT certification, and reduce burdens and costs. One item to be conscious of is that not all patients have access to a smartphone, and that could be for a myriad of reasons. So just be conscious about that as you're thinking about your policies and procedures if you are a covered entity and what the alternatives are for your patients. So on April 21st of this year, CMS made an announcement and they indicated that both CMS and ONC actually, have changed the final rule now displayed on the Federal Register to state that the new COPs, and those are conditions of participation, will be extended for an additional six months. So now we have 12 months after the final rule is published. From the outset, I mentioned that COVID has had an impact. And so if you're going to mark your calendar today, for the publication date of the Federal Register final rule, you can now mark the effective date of March or May 1st of 2021. So, again, that's just something to be conscious of when you're marking your calendar on that. Again, just like any rule or standard implementation, you don't want To wait till the 11th hour to try and scramble and become compliant. And if you're already developing apps, you should have been on top of this a while ago to make sure that you had everything ready. Because if you're attesting to the government that you're meeting these standards, as the case law has shown with False Claims Act cases and very significant settlements against e-clinical works and Greenway, for example, to EHR vendors who falsified their compliance and attestations to the government. Those cases settled for between 50 million and approximately 151 million. So again, these types of attestations and false and fraudulent statements and claims are items that the DOJ is aware of and whistleblowers and their counsel will be looking out for as well so topics covered in the final rule there's a plethora first and foremost a summary of major provisions and clarifications which is typical in any final rule then they get into deregulatory actions for previous rule From there, it delves into updates to the 2015 edition certification criteria. Then it's adoption of the United States core data interoperability as standard B. Then it gets into electronic prescribing. And this is something that if you prescribe controlled substances you wanna be particularly mindful of. From there, it gets into clinical measures electronic health information exports, application programming interfaces, and that's another nugget which is quite painful. The privacy and security transparency attestations, again, that's where your False Claims Act liability and additional civil monetary penalties could come into play. Security tags and consent management modifications to the ONC Health IT certification program health IT for the care continuum, and conditions and maintenance of certification requirements, information blocking, and costs and benefits. So, what are some of the new CMS final rules? Well, first and foremost, again, CMS highlights different parts of the CFR, which I have mentioned in the first bullet point. Again, the CMS rule is scheduled for publication in the Federal Register on May 1st of 2020. So, both rules, again, are being published today, May 1, 2020. CMS is taking additional steps to provide payers and patients opportunities and information to protect patient data and make informed decisions about sharing patient health information with third parties. Another sidebar there is that you need to look and see what your state's privacy rules are doing. For New York, for example, the privacy shield in California, the CCPA is one to hone in on. And if you do anything internationally, you want to look not only at what I call the macro countries laws, But you also want to look, for example, in Canada, you would have to look at the individual provinces' laws as to how they handle protected health information and interact with entities from the United States. And in Europe, you have obviously the European Union and the European Commission, and then you have what are known as individual member states, which are the individual countries, such as Germany, Spain, Italy, Turkey, et cetera. So that is just something to be conscious of because GDPR rears its ugly head in that part of the world. So CMS is adopting the standards for FHIR-based APIs. Again, FHIR is that little lovely uh in terms of capability standards that you have to absolutely make sure that you're going to be adhering to because again there could be liability uh, which is very costly lurking around the corner these requirements support the privacy and security of patient information and this rule finalizes new policies that help liberate health information and move the healthcare system toward greater interoperability. The interoperability and patient access final rule, these new policies include the following, and this literally just came off of the website, and just for everyone's reference, I have attached a reference slide at the very end of this presentation, so the link, to these items is available there. But basically, new policies include patient access API, provider directory API, payer-to-payer data exchange, improving the dually eligible experience by increasing the frequency of federal state data exchanges, public reporting and information blocking, digital contact information, admission, discharge, and transfer event notifications. So, what's important here is that we have a variety of dates to juggle, and so one needs to be on top of additional final rules or clarifications that are most likely going to be implemented. So, I'm sure Catherine and I will be doing another webinar later on to address all of those little lovelies once we have new information. So headlines and app risks. So app risks are basically, on online app store Google has already discovered apps that are abusing their access to those sensors. And these are general app risks. They're not just related to healthcare, but there's a direct application, especially when you're transferring such sensitive data, which the FBI, Ponymon, and other studies have shown has a much higher value on the dark web, ranging from approximately 10 times the value of your basic credit card information. And I've read some reports where a medical record goes for as high as a thousand dollars per record. So that's something that is significant. I'm often asked why that's the case. Well, if you have someone's keys to the kingdom, so to speak, of their personal life in relation to their healthcare, you have their social security number, their date of birth, their name, their providers, and their insurance number. And all of that together can lead to someone buying that information and then using that information again and filing false claims. So that's how that comes up with uh, fraud down the line, so to speak. Basically, Google recently rebooted booted 20 apps from Android phones and its app store. Those apps could record with a microphone, monitor a phone's location and take photos and then extract the data. And they could do all of this without a user's knowledge. So one of the things that is concerning to me about these two new rules is how does a user know what app is legitimate and what app is not? And that's something I'll touch on a little bit further in relation to potential liability for a provider. But as a provider, you're gonna want to have a, What's the word I'm looking for? A release. Pretty much a release is what I would tell my clients. If a patient is asking for data to be transferred to the app of their choosing, how do you know what that app is? And another question I would raise is does the entity have the right to refuse to transfer something to an unknown app? So, an unknown app could be something that isn't a generally accepted item, and I'm using Fitbit because everyone's heard of Fitbit, but hypothetically speaking, if you could transfer your medical records to Fitbit, it's presumed that Fitbit has taken all of the technical administrative and physical safeguards that are required under NIST, as well as the HIPAA privacy rule, and then also this new hl7 fhir api capability standards when they develop the app also an entity like apple health or my Records from apple or whatever they're called that's something that would be more comforting to a provider, and rightly so, because the problem is, as a provider, how do you protect yourself from a rogue app just as the ones that Google booted from their Android phones when someone has access to that data right off the bat and you don't know it? Furthermore, if your EHR is then tied in somehow to what's being released, can they infiltrate a malware attack and then gain access and? really perpetuate a ransomware attack or other form of attack which could harm the whole system so i see a lot of items that need to be flushed out so hopefully that's something that will be focused on by onc and cms in the upcoming rules and guidance so apps, some other general items the chief worry isn't about thieves getting their hands on lost or stolen devices that's because most of us A, have encrypted phones, B, have at least a secure passcode, and C, many of us have two-factor identification. By the way, you don't just want to use a biometric such as a thumbprint because law enforcement can require that you open your phone if that is your only mode. Also, in legal proceedings, that's something that can be required. Your password, on the other hand, cannot. Without your knowledge, the developers of your app, your wireless provider, and your handset manufacturer can sell this information to other firms, like advertisers, insurers, or even places that you're applying for a job. And again, that's frightening because if your health information's out there, people can exploit that both financially and then potentially depending on what's in your medical record, use that against you. And if you think about some very sensitive, topics such as STDs or uh, rape, where that would be in a person's medical record, or if someone went through a uh, mental health crisis, that's something that should not be known. Also, even not related to mental health or something as sensitive as a rape, just think if Steve Jobs' cancer had been leaked before Apple was ready to make that announcement. The stock would have gone haywire, and that's something too that can have broader implications than just an individual. So HIPAA sales and marketing, this goes hand in hand with these new rules as well as some of the app items. So first and foremost, we wanna start with the sale of PHI. The HIPAA privacy rule gives individuals important controls over whether and how their protected information is used and disclosed for marketing purposes. So again, that's something consumers need to be conscious of. Are you giving up your rights whenever you download an app? And that's something you need to read the terms and conditions if you can find them. Most state laws require that terms and conditions as well as what your personal information is being used for, that's required, and CCPA as well as GDPR give certain subsets of individuals the ability to opt out of those laws, and there are certain transactions, though, that can't be opted out of, and that's something that you need to be very aware of, too, but with limited exceptions, the rule requires an individual's written authorization before a use or disclosure of his or her protected health information can be made for marketing. So, marketing is different than the sale of PHI, but both of these are absolutely material. And as was shown in the False Claims Act case involving Warner Chilcott, as well as physicians giving access to patient protected health information, with the patient did not give their written authorization and understand completely what they were authorizing. Basically, that landed several people in the criminal realm of HIPAA violations and into the sale of PHI. Ultimately, Warner Chilcott, the pharmaceutical company, benefited financially, and it was found that the physicians benefited financially from the kickbacks that they were receiving either in cash or in kind from the pharmaceutical company in order to access that information. So, HIPAA and marketing. The privacy rule defines marketing as a communication about a product or service that encourages recipients of the communication to purchase or use the product or service Generally, if the communication is marketing, then the communication can occur only if the covered entity first obtains an individual's authorization. This definition of marketing has certain exceptions. So examples of marketing communication requiring prior authorizations are a communication from a hospital informing former patients about a cardiac facility That is not part of the hospital that can provide baseline EKGs for $39 when the communication is not for the purpose of providing treatment advice. Another example is a communication from a health insurance company promoting a home and casualty insurance product offered by the same company. where would a patient find out about these and what can a covered entity do to protect themselves? You need to make sure that your privacy policies are available to patients as well as their families who may or may not be surrogate decision makers, but you need to outline what is permissible marketing, what is impermissible marketing, and then to take it a step further, if you are into the realm of Impermissible marketing, and by that I mean you're required to get that prior authorization, or you're into the sale of PHI, that's something that needs to be on the HIPAA authorization form, and patients need to be given the option to opt out of having their information used in that manner. It needs to be in bold, it can't be in fine print, it's the back of the document, almost like a contract of adhesion. And again, I always recommend that my clients have the patient initial, that particular item, and say that they understand whats what it is being used for. For the covered entity, that does not negate any other obligation it may have, such as a business associate agreement between a covered entity and, for example, a business associate such as a medical device company or a pharmaceutical company. And I think this is an area that we'll see uh, more and more case law on in the future as privacy laws and security laws become more and more of a focus, and rightly so. This is something that should have been honed in on years ago, but for whatever reason, it was not. The individual must authorize the marketing practicing communications before they can occur. Simply put, a covered entity may not sell protected health information to a business associate or any other third party for that party's own purposes. Moreover, covered entities may not sell lists of patients or enrollees to third parties without obtaining authorization from each person on the list. A great example of this was the University of Rochester, where a nurse practitioner downloaded a patient list and took the list to her new employer. Both the nurse and the university of rochester were fined because they did not have adequate access policies they had inadequate safeguards in place from a technical standpoint and the training wasn't adequate so both sides of the equation got dinged on that in the form of fines the nurse practitioner actually had her license revoked for a period of time And it was shown that by taking that information to a new provider that the competitor or the new provider would have benefited potentially from a remuneration standpoint. So again, it's something that one has to be very, very conscious of on that front. Two other examples which are crucial uh, and relate to this sale marketing of PHI is a health plan sells a list of its members to a company that sells blood glucose monitors, which intends to send the plan members brochures on the benefits of purchasing and using the monitors. And then second, a drug manufacturer receives a list of patients from a covered health care provider and provides remuneration, then uses that list to send discount coupons for a new antidepressant medication directly to its patients. This is different than the Warner Chilcott case, which involved the access of sales representatives to patient medical records in order to complete the prior authorizations that need to be sent in as well as other forms. So again, that's something just to be very aware of. The 2013 omnibus rule and the sale of PHI, again, I began this webinar with a portion of this rule and the portion of the rule that related to the PSIOX case and the privacy rule in relation to an individual's ability to access their protected health information as well as the amount that an entity could charge for that information. So the omnibus rule, we have 78 Federal Register 5566 and that was published in January of 2013. We then have the effective date of March 2013 and then we had the date in September of 2013, what I call the required compliance date. that's kind of how that strung along. There were exceptions, and for those who are familiar, the Omnibus Rule also includes quite a bit of information on the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act. I sometimes call it the Non-Disclosure Act, just because it's easier to remember. But that is something that is particularly germane. Another key item that was in the omnibus rule related to an individual's ability to get their lab results directly from a lab instead of having to go to a provider to get it. So those are two key items also associated with the omnibus rule. So the sale equals the disclosure of protected health information for remuneration. And for those of you who are participating in the webinar and are involved in the healthcare industry, That language may look familiar, and it should, because it mirrors the federal anti-kickback statute language, which passed in 1972, but not in relation to disclosure for remuneration. That was kickback in exchange for referrals, both in cash and in kind, directly or indirectly. So a lot of times what you see is the anti-kickback statute and HIPAA running in tandem in a variety of different cases, and that was also in play in the Warner Chilcott case. Covered entities notice of privacy practices must state that any sale of PHI requires an authorization. A sale of PHI occurs when there is, again, the language is key, direct or indirect remuneration, including in-kind remuneration. In contrast, the definition of remuneration for marketing purposes does not include non-financial or in-kind remuneration. The definition of the sale of PHI includes a transfer of ownership of the protected health information, as well as disclosures of PHI based on the access, license, or lease agreement. There are a number of exclusions to the definition of a sale of PHI, including for purposes of one, public health, two, research that is covered by HIPAA, clinical research. You just need to make sure that you have all of the IRB and other FDA laws in place there treatment and payment, a sale and merger transaction involving a covered entity or the business associate, activities performed by a business associate or on behalf of the covered entity. Again, that business associate contract is absolutely required. Providing an access or an accounting to an individual as required by law, as otherwise permitted under HIPAA, where only a reasonable cost-based fee is paid or such other fee as permitted by law. Finally, the authorization for a sale must specifically state that the sale will result in remuneration. So there's no way to dance around the issue. You need to disclose exactly what is going on with that person's protected health information. Failing to have a very provision in that HIPAA authorization can result in significant fines, penalties, and potential False Claims Act suits. So HHS OCR's new facts, and actually this is from last year, but they're still relevant today, but they're particularly germane in light of our fun new provisions in the final rules which were just released today so one item that we want to hone in on before we delve into these Q&A's which were in fact posted on HHS's website is an application program interface well first and foremost what is that I know I've mentioned it a couple times it's a set of programming instructions and standards for accessing a web-based software application or web tool so a common one that many of you are probably familiar with is the apple ios api that's used to detect touch screen interactions so basically apis are tools they allow you as a programmer to deliver solid solutions fairly rapidly if you have to rebuild everything from scratch every time your solutions will be cumbersome so there is Um, a method behind the madness, so to speak, on that front. But having said that, one item that you need to be aware of if you're creating apps is this new Health Level 7 Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. And again, that acronym is HL7, F-H-I-R, and it's now up to release. 4.0.1. And beginning on January 1st of 2021, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, CHIP, and plans on the federal exchanges will be required to support the standard that allows a patient to access claims and various information related to his or her medical encounter. For example, cost or clinical information via a Third party app of his or her choice. And it's this last part that everybody should be very concerned about, from patients to providers to quite frankly, the government, because if you look at what an entity is able to access and what these exchanges and Medicare Advantage and Medicaid are required to give access to, again, a third party app that's not appropriately vetted is carte blanche for a cyber criminal to exploit. So, how this plays out, I think, will be very interesting to watch. And API could be used to integrate a health plan's information into a patient's EHR. This nugget, and these three items that I just mentioned, basically, that API has to be secure, and it needs to specify how software components should interact. So, all of these factors need to be considered now because they build upon this previous guidance and clarification from HHS when you're dealing with an app. So how does a HIPAA-covered entity that fulfills an individual's request to transmit electronic protected health information? an application or other software bear liability? In typical lawyer fashion, the answer is it depends, and it's based on the relationship between the covered entity and the app. HHS expressly stated the following, once healthcare information is received from a covered entity at the individual's direction by an app that is neither a covered entity nor a business associate under HIPAA, The information is no longer subject to the protections of the HIPAA rule. Well, the two new ONC rules are kind of game changers on that front. And if I were covered entities, I would be scrutinizing coming up with those releases that I mentioned earlier. And really, it appears as though covered entities and some business associates are going to have a role in educating patients. So I would look for guidance from the Federal Trade Commission, the Federal Communications Commission, ONC, and HHS to see what is viable under these options for the patient, because if it's gonna put your whole system at risk, then that doesn't seem quite right either. So it's a balancing test, and I think we'll see more come out on this, but be cautious and be prudent and you never know quite honestly and you hate to be this suspect of a person but your patient could be a cyber criminal and be trying to access your information too so you just need to start thinking in that way and protect yourself as a provider in some ways as a business associate too on the flip side a covered entity is liable for the hipaa privacy rule items when the app was developed for or provided by or on behalf of the covered entity, because it then creates, receives, maintains, or transmits ePHI on behalf of the covered entity. So that's what is crucial here, but weighing the two options of giving information to a patient on any app or having an app created just like Cleveland Clinic's MyChart, I use that as an example just because I'm familiar with it personally, and they integrate their systems very well. A lot of other major health systems do that too, but at least they have control and they know that the standards are being met. If you are required to just disseminate information to any app, that's frightening to be forthright with you. So again, if the individual selects an app that the covered entity provider uses to give the services to the individual involving ePHI, the healthcare provider may be subject to liability under the HIPAA rules if the app impermissibly discloses the ePHI received. Having said that, if you now look at the ONC and the CMS rules, there's a lot to parse out here in terms of data sharing and what the potential liability is, so more to come on that as the final rules receive further clarification and guidance, and I would go back to that slide where we had the timing of different items coming out within the next two years. So what liability does a covered entity face if it fulfills a request to send their EPHI using an unsecure method to an app? Well, A, with these new rules and the requirement to share information via a third-party app of the patient's choosing, this is where I would, again, have that release uh, formed. I would also be very clear in giving a little tutorial on that. And I think it will be interesting to see if it's going to be a requirement that a list of apps are put out as to what apps a covered entity or a business associate may be required to send PHI to or ePHI because they've been at least vetted by a governmental agency instead of a gazillion apps that it are now requiring a covered entity to transmit PHI to, but then they could be putting them at risk. And so it's a delicate balance. And again, I think this is an emerging area that people should be interested in and focused on. So finally, where the individual directs the covered entity, this is where the rubber meets the road, really in terms of every facet of the presentation today. A business associate relationship exists between an EHR system developer and a covered entity. If the EHR system developer does not own the app, or if it owns the app, but but does not provide the app to, through, or on behalf of the covered entity, meaning that it creates the app and makes it available in an app store as part of a different line of business and not as part of that relationship with a covered entity again think cleveland clinic MyChart. the ehr system developer would not be liable under the hipaa rules for any subsequent use or disclosure of the requested ephi received by the app having said that now that we have these new rules i would be uh cautious along these lines because if the apps are saying we are hipaa compliant or it is encrypted. We have no issues. Then you're back to what Google found with those 20 apps that it booted. And that's something as we've seen both in government contracts in the Cisco False Claims Act case, as well as other cases, that is something the government is honing in on. So lying that you're HIPAA compliant and then having patients and other entities rely on that That's when you get into trouble, and the Federal Trade Commission has taken action even within the last couple of years, and one can look at Henry Sheen Dental and their EHR and public statements in relation to that. So can the covered entity refuse? In general, it says no, and this isn't new. This is not related to the two final rules that were just published by ONC and CMS, but Although the HIPAA rules do not impose any restrictions on how an individual or the individual's designee, such as an app, may use the health information that has been disclosed pursuant to the individual's right of access, again, you need to be careful about ransomware attacks, about malware, about who created that app, and are they a legitimate entity, or is your information being used in a way that you never intended it to be used? So again, that's something you need to be very, very conscious of across all fronts. So telehealth and telecommuting, no presentation in this day and age would be complete without a little nod to COVID and some of the issues that are being dealt with right now. One is telehealth versus telecommuting. Telehealth is very specific to a communication technology that is used between a provider and a patient. That's it. It does not apply to a business associate and a covered entity. This is a patient interaction with a provider. And OCR came out and said we have permissible and really recommended applications. And I pulled Apple FaceTime and Skype and read their encryption standards and it was easy to see why these were at least mentioned. I always recommend that providers notify patients that the third-party apps are potentially introducing privacy risks and providers should enable all available encryption and privacy modes when using such applications. Non-permissible are the publicly-facing video communications, which should be common sense. Telecommuting is something that really anyone's engaged in, and it's particularly germane in relation to the healthcare industry and those communications between covered entities and business associates and then business associates and subcontractors. Also, depending on state law, or if you don't fit neatly into one of the three HIPAA categories, the Federal Trade Commission has its own breach notification rule, which could impart liability. So you need to be familiar with that as well. It's nothing new, it's been out since February of 2010, and they have dinged people for not being HIPAA compliant as well. So the Coronavirus Bulletin basically says that, in general, except for limited circumstances, affirmative reporting to the media or public at large about an identifiable patient or the disclosure to the public or media of specific information about treatment of an identifiable patient, such as specific tests, test results, or details of a patient's illness may not be done without the patient's written authorization. And that's crucial. As it relates, I get this question a lot, and I've been quoted in different publications on this very issue. Why are local entities withholding information from first responders? Well, the reality is a first responder fits into some of the exceptions that HIPAA has recognized from the outset, the treatment rule, the public health activities, rule which enables certain types of information to be relayed to various public health entities a public health authority could be the cdc it could also be a foreign government agency that is acting in collaboration with the public health authority so that's something to be conscious of disclosures to friends and family again this is something that is commonplace And in relation to the telecommuting, I absolutely wanna make sure that people appreciate that this is nothing new. And I live in Houston, so we dealt with Hurricane Harvey. And that's when those two crucial policies and procedures, the business continuity and disaster recovery plan come into play. You should have a teleworking setup available, whether you're a covered entity, business associate or subcontractor, and identifiable steps for transitioning to that. It's gonna be different for every organization because some are global, some are nationwide, some are regional, and some are very local. But the technical, administrative, and physical safeguards are items that cannot be ignored, and those are expressed in the security rule. So in terms of compliance, you want to adopt a timeline that identifies the requirements and the applicable dates integrate the respective aspects into the requisite HIPAA risk analysis, become educated on this fun new standard, HL7, F-H-I-R, API compatibility standards, appreciate how HIPAA applies to the coronavirus in a variety of ways, including how the coronavirus impacted the effective date of these two new rules from CMS and ONC, and be conscious that telecommuting is very different than telehealth. So with that, I thank you for your time and attention today, and I will take any questions that you may have.